One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 17th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, RTE remains in the dock with uh, the latest stage in the saga outlining how RTE's creative accountancy led all of us to believe that nobody working there was earning more than half a million euro. How this happened and why it happened is set out across 79 pages in a Grant Thornton report published yesterday. There's many questions for RTE and there's many questions too for the auditors Deloitte who signed off on how payments were recorded. There is little surprise in the main conclusion but because it confirms what people feared most it is going to leave many people very angry. Let's speak to Fiona Sheen, who is the Ireland editor with the Irish Independent. Fiona, this report suggests that on the balance of probabilities, the adjustments were made for those years in question in order to allow for revised earnings below a figure of €500,000 in each year to Ryan Tuberty. That's another way of saying that RTE knowingly and intentionally set out to make a fool out of all of us, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's another way of saying that the the, the true salary was was being concealed. So, you know, similar to the the impact uh, of the the other deal that we know about, that was the infamous Renault deal with the barter account and the, the no name invoices and so on. That was again to to mislead uh, the public. So. In this case, th- there isn't a firm conclusion. I mean, ultimately, as you go through the report, you find there's all sorts of, of contradictions between different people uh, in, in RTE. Uh, no no definitive account of the motivation uh, behind this move. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, that, that's what Grant Thornton are, are, are finding, that, that effectively, if, if you read between the lines, yeah. as effectively the accountants are doing, yeah. uh, this the net impact was... Keep it under the 500 grand mark. That doesn't make it look as bad. Mm. Uh, that's deceit, isn't it? I mean, people are going yeah. to be very upset at the idea that RTE set out to deceive the public, the Oireachtas, and indeed its own staff. And one of uh, the objectives of pretending that Ryan Tuberty was earning less than 500,000 was so that the other people working for them would take pay cuts. Yeah, and, and this was, was coming uh, continually at a time of cost-cutting, so the sensitivity around it was that, that they didn't want people to be able to point and say, 
well, how come that guy is making that much money and you're expecting us now to take, to take uh, pay cuts? So that, that was the issue at hand in the context of what they were dealing with uh, at, at, the, at the time. Mm. As you say, it, it, it's because it's, it is a, a, a state agency that the difficulty lies here. Uh, if this was if this was a private organisation, if it was a private company, if they'd put out a, a press statement that was subsequently found to be some, somewhat misleading, you'd say, yeah, look, the, the, the shareholders, the directors, the management, and so on are entitled to be to be upset about it, um, but the customers don't have have that much of a stake. In, in this case, every home in the land is obliged. Uh, to pay their their 160 euros uh, a year in their in their license mm-hmm. uh, fee, uh, on top of that, uh, the organisation receipt is is also in receipt of other uh, state state funding. It is the national state broadcaster, uh, and therefore levels of accountability are important. There, this also wasn't. Uh, let's look at it this way. This wasn't a, 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 a random statement that they put out that was slightly misleading. This was a, a, a report directly to the Oireachtas. Uh, so in terms of, of respect for both the people and the parliament, uh, it wasn't being shown here. Mm. Uh, and we've uh, two financial controllers who are at odds with each other, it seems, over who was responsible for this decision. Uh, we've Richard Collins, uh, who people will know from uh, the recent uh, Oireachtas committees, uh, and indeed Breda O'Keefe, who preceded him uh, and appeared at one of those committee hearings. Yeah, so, so the two, Breda O'Keefe... Uh says that that this was not a decision of, of her making that by the time uh, she had left the organization uh, this had not happened and and richard collins uh, differs uh, on that on who exactly is is responsible the the, the difficulty arises uh, in that there was a 120 grand bonus that was payable to ryan toberty it wasn't paid and you you can take a couple of re- officially Ryan Toberty waived that bonus. On on the flip side, you can argue, well, look, he wasn't going to, going to get it, or he didn't have the money, and it was becoming a an issue of contention in contract uh, negotiation. So he waives the bonus, and then RT end up with this figure on the balance sheet, and a decision is taken to to mark down uh, his official revenue over the, the, the previous uh, three years uh, in a, in an apparent accounting measure, mm. but. This is despite then the fact that the payroll showed quite clearly that for those three years in question, he was paid over half a million. And those are the figures that were the real accurate figures, actual figures, are what was supposed to be presented uh, to the public and to the parliament. And they weren't. So that that question still lies there. How exactly can you have an organisation that can behave in such a, a snapdash uh, manner, uh, one in in which entirely misleading figures that that bear no relationship to reality can actually be put out there. Yeah, uh, and uh, the saga is far from over. It seems uh, the reason Ryan Tuberty was being paid 
over half a million when we were told otherwise was that RTE was afraid he'd go to the BBC or CNN mm. in the same way that they paid Pat Kenny 900,000 uh, before him. Now it seems as though there's a prospect of Ryan Tuberty returning to RTE for 200,000 or, or less. At least that would have been the case up to a statement that was published yesterday by Ryan Tuberty. RTE now looking for clarity on what he had to say about his earnings and what was published. Yeah, so again, we're back at a point where Ryan Toberty is negotiating a contract. He was out of contract anyway. As we know, he left the Late Late Show, therefore uh, there was going to be need to be a, a new contract put in place that would account for uh, only his radio show, not the flagship uh, chat show of, of, of the week, and also perhaps some, some additional work, one-off uh, documentaries and, and, and so on. So this all came uh, to a halt, uh, given the controversies that that emerged uh, in, in June. He's been off the air since. He has, for the past month, been in, in talks uh, about returning to the airwaves. And this report published yesterday does have a bearing on that, in that if, if, if it had brought anything new into the public domain about Ryan Tuberty, then that, that would have created a, a difficulty. I think it's quite clear there was knowledge within RTE that this aspect of the controversy was not of, of his his making. When this report was published yesterday, Ryan Tuberty issued a statement, you know, welcoming it, and, and it said that he had no hand or actor part in the 2017-2019 the uh, deception, as, as you described it. Uh, but he also added in that, well, really the figures that, that he was paid in the succeeding years of 2020 to 2022, or were as stated in the RT account. So he's getting back into the issue of the, the Renault deal and who exactly paid that. And he's kind of getting a dig in there that really wasn't RTE that paid him. It, it was Renault, and therefore it shouldn't count uh, as his officially publicly declared salary. Now, what Grant Thornton conclusion yesterday was it is right and proper that those figures be included as uh, his salary uh, because ultimately the money came from RTE one way or another uh, indirectly uh, rather than directly so they're basically saying yeah look that money ultimately came from RTE therefore it was your your salary so we're we're into a kind of a a quibble now between RTE and Ryan Tuberty about what, what exactly uh, he meant with with those comments. Mm. You'd have to say it, it, it's a kind of a, a, an unnecessary row to to pick at this point in time, when basically Kevin Backers, the director general uh, of RTE, is saying that the the, con- the the contract negotiations are at a sensitive point. Mm. The future of RTE is at a, a sensitive point. Uh, it's. Pretty uncertain as things stand uh, with uh, the institution losing about a million euro a week because people aren't buying their TV licence or aren't renewing their licence as uh, the case may be. I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, But uh, one of the things that we hear from people is they don't trust RTE anymore. And there must be an awful lot of people thinking this morning that if RTE set out to mislead the public, well, what do I make of that? I feel like a right fool, like they made a fool out of me, telling me that Ryan Tuberty earned less than half a million so that I wouldn't give out. I didn't give out. Now I'm hearing he did earn more than half a million. And that was 
dishonest, fundamentally dishonest. Um, how can I trust RTA if that's the case? I think that's a question that people will be asking. And if people don't feel that they can trust RTA, you'd wonder if they're going to buy the TV licence or, or what will that mean for the future. And I, I wonder how many people were privy to the decision to set out to mislead the public and can RTA continue whilst those people continue to be employees of the organisation? Yeah, a big problem uh, about this report yesterday, it, it does... Uh, clear Ryan Tuberty of, of blame on, on this aspect uh, of, of the controversy. He said, look, he had nothing to do with, with this uh, part of it. However, if you're looking at it from the wider RTE context, you'd say if you didn't trust RTE uh, by yesterday morning, you certainly don't trust them now. Uh, the The manner in which uh, this issue was, was, was handled, as you say, you know, Deception uh, in, involved very convoluted processes going on in the background, not clear lines of, of communication, uh, accountability or, or transparency. And as you say, there are still some individuals uh, involved in the organisation. There are some individuals who are only recently uh, de- departed uh, as well. So this is now th- that that wider challenge that the RTE uh, management uh, and board and entire organisation uh, has got in rebuilding trust. It, it's not just about bringing Ryan Tuberty back into the fold. That that doesn't solve the, the fundamental problem. They're down about five million now at this point. Uh, revenue year on year uh, based upon the amount of, of TV licence sales over the course of the last five to, to, to six weeks. So if if that continues, then that creates a, an enormous difficulty for them. Uh, you effectively have got, uh, you know, four out of ten people who bought their TV licence last year, this year, saying, well, I'm, I'm not buying it. Uh, and for now, and that presents a challenge then, to the system in terms of what do you do with these people? Do do you prosecute them? Do you just have to let it slide? Does that then create a contagion effect where other people just decide, well, I'm not going, I'm not paying for it either. There's nothing they can do to me. Mm. All right, we'll leave it there, Fiona, for the moment. Uh, we'll have more on uh, the Grant Thornton report later in uh, the programme. But thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Fiona Sheehan is the Ireland editor with uh, the Irish Independent. Some calls coming to us on uh, this this morning. Sean in uh, Dublin says, My heart bleeds for Mr Tuberty. His wages may drop to him getting just €400,000 a week <laughs> or €4,000 a week, is it? Sorry, when it comes to RTA here, Ryan Turbity, you wouldn't know what you were going to read. 4000 a week. Uh, Sean's heart bleeds for Ryan Turbity if he has to live off 4000 a week and for that he just has to talk rubbish for an hour every day in a five-day week. If RTA thinks that that's value for the taxpayer, then let's see how many will rush to pay the licence Faith, thanks uh, Sean for your text. Uh, Joan uh, in, te- in touch too uh, saying she's sick of it, sick to the teeth of all this. Seriously, how can RTE lie to us? We have to fund them by giving the €160 Euro a year to them, whether we watch or whether we ever listen or not. And that's the law. Well, I paid for my TV licence. I didn't actually, but if RTE can lie to me and get away with it, I might as well 
try my uh, luck and lie to them. Thanks, Joan, for that. Uh, another text or WhatsApp message from Deirdre who says something needs to be done urgently about this scandal uh, that uh, it's a serious issue with uh, the TB licence and that we should get rid of the licence altogether. Thank you, Deirdre, as always, for your message. Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk texting us concerning the controversy of tattoos, which we'll be discussing earlier on in Angarda Shiakana. He says everyone should have a tattoo in the case of drownings or getting lost. Their bodies could be easily identified. Interesting thought, Eric. Thanks for that. Tom and Kells is in touch with us today too, saying I can't understand why all of these people in Ortier paid so much money. They broadcast a lot of crap on TV. I don't know how long since I last sat down to watch a good film. I wouldn't blame people for not paying their TV licence. Thanks, Tom, as I say. Our phone number is 0419832000 if you want to ring us today and make a comment on the programme. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the Bank of Ireland software glitch on Tuesday night, uh, whatever that is, uh, I don't know, but it resulted in a really strange situation where customers were allowed to to withdraw up to €1,000 in cash. Uh, Some of uh, the people who did that, I'm sure, had €1,000 and plenty more in their bank accounts. Others didn't have tuppence halfpenny to their names. Gardaí were deployed to different parts of the country to stop people from taking money out of ATMs and to break up queues of people who were waiting to use them. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties is asking today why Gardaí were monitoring ATMs and let's hear a little bit more about this. Liam Herrick is uh, the Executive uh, Director with uh, the ICCL. A very good morning to you Liam and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Why is it that you're questioning this? Well, good morning Michael. I think the reason that there's so much public uh, concern about this is that there is a context here at the moment where the public are very concerned, particularly with regard to Dublin, about the responsiveness of the guards to serious crime on the streets, to the presence of guards on the streets. And in that context, um, they, they were surprised, I think a lot of us were surprised, to see what looked like a quite significant deployment of guards to ATMs, not just in Dublin, but at different locations around the country, in a very quick and rapid way um, when this Bank of Ireland issue arose. Mm. Now, what, what the guards are saying in the statement that they've issued is that this was a public order operation. And I think what's really important here is that if Angarda Siakana are involved in restricting people's liberties in any way, in this case, in obstructing or stopping them from accessing an ATM machine, that they need to have a lawful basis for what they do, and they also need to be clear and transparent about that lawful basis. So what they're saying is that they were concerned that there might be a public order uh, problem. Uh, and I suppose, hypothetically, we can all imagine a public order problem arising if there was a run on the banks or if there was a, a severe disturbance because mm. too many people were trying to access the bank, or maybe people might be trying to take money from people who are taking money out of ATM machines. But it's, it's not clear that those problems actually transpired. Um, so what the guards are saying now is that they received a number of phone calls from members of the public. Over 40 calls, yeah. 
and and responded to a a lot of those calls and they say that when they uh, showed up at ATMs it was in response to those calls one of the calls for example was in Navin where there was a a bit of pushing and shoving going on apparently Yeah, I suppose the question is you know, is this proportionate if it's 40 calls across the whole country, some were just uh, concerned that queues were forming and others were that there might be a public order disturbance but I mean, that's what the statement says. This was a public order matter that effectively in Garda Síochána were not involved in protecting the ATMs or in any civil matter between the bank and its customers. There's no indication that there was any other crime prevention or crime detection activity going on here. Mm. That's what the statement says. What the public will be surprised about, and I think what we're all concerned about, is that you then contrast that with the images that we actually saw, which was of Garda squad cars blocking access to ATMs, of guards physically obstructing people from using ATMs, in a context where it's difficult to imagine that the guards were in a position to identify who was the Bank of Ireland customer, who wasn't, Mm. how much people had in their accounts. I mean, it's very possible here that many of the people that were queuing up to access ATMs were doing so because they needed money and weren't able to engage in online banking because of the Bank of Ireland failure. And, and what the Garda statement does not refer to is the contact that they had with Bank of Ireland. Because Bank of Ireland separately had come out and said, yes, we did engage with a Garda Síochána. There was dialogue between the bank and the guards, um, but we didn't make a specific request. However, we do know that the guards subsequently made certain local decisions to deploy people to ATM. Mm. So I think the Garda statement is, is raising a number of questions which which don't fully, I think, provide clarity to the public about what actually happened. Okay, could you argue that this was a bank robbery? Uh, I mean, lots of people were taking out money that they didn't have, that didn't belong to them, that belonged to the bank, and they were robbing the bank, and the bank was being robbed, and the bank asked the guards to assist, and the guards would obviously intervene in the case of a bank robbery, but in addition to that, there was protecting people from themselves, because if people, it's very sad, I think, to think that people would go to the bank and take out a, a thousand euro if they haven't got the money themselves. Uh, they must be in a, a pretty desperate situation to do that. But there's these consequences down the road for them. Uh, and to prevent people from doing that would be in their interest, would it not? Well, there's a number of different aspects to that. I mean, first of all, we don't know at this point, maybe Bank of Ireland will tell us at some point, how much money was withdrawn in, in an unauthorised way. We have no idea about that. It may not be that significant amount, if any at all. Secondly, the guards have said that that's not what they were doing. That they, and, and I think the reason that the guards are saying this is because they don't want to create any impression, although I think the, creation, the impression has been created anyway, that they were acting on behalf of the bank. Because the relation with the bank and the customers is a civil matter and the guards shouldn't be involved in it. But we know that over recent years there's been a lot of controversy about the guards getting drawn into civil matters, particularly when it comes to landlords evicting tenants. And even though the guards legally should have no role in that, we know that there's been a number of incidents where they have, and there's been investigations into this subsequently. So I I think that there's a couple of different layers there. But if there was a situation where somebody did take money that they weren't authorised to take out, of course, the bank has recourse. It can either, through the civil courts, try to get that money back, or it can provide information to the guards subsequently who might prosecute people. And... 
I think mm. nobody would have any objection with that. If people break the law, they should be dealt with. Yeah, but uh, I mean, look at it. Look, this is very simplistic, uh, but uh, it works in my mind. If I can run this by Elaine, imagine the door of the bank was open and the safe was open. Uh, would the guards uh, not be obligated to drive up to the bank and stop people from walking in and walking out with the money in the safe? Well, I think the presumption that people are involved in criminality is very different in that scenario than it is when people are accessing an ATM, which they are lawfully entitled to do. You know, I mean, how, how could a guard know that anybody in a queue for an ATM mm. the other evening w- w- had money on their account or didn't? Mm. And, you know, people need to access ATMs for perfectly legitimate purposes all of the time. So I think it's, it's a different scenario. Um, but it still doesn't get away from the, the, the central question here was, was this a reasonable and appropriate policing decision to deploy guard resources in this way at this time? What intelligence did the guards have that there was a significant public order issue? And did it merit this response? Like the public order unit, which is deployed on a regional basis, what usually happens when they're aware of a risk of a public order issue around a demonstration is that they might deploy a force and, and keep it in reserve somewhere nearby and, you know, very often in police vehicles. And then if a problem arises, they can respond quickly. That's not what happened here. I mean, what happened here is that guards were involved in blocking people getting at ATMs. And, and some of these things might seem like legal issues. But the bottom line here is that the guards are very significant legal powers but they must be very clear about what law it is they are enforcing. Mm. And I think the Garda statement here that this was a public order issue isn't very convincing when you look at what actually happened and the fact that they don't seem to be making any acknowledgement or reference to the fact that they were in contact with Bank of Ireland during this period of time. They make no reference to this whatsoever. Mm. So I, I think there are questions still unanswered for the Garda Commissioner. Uh, and I think we, we would also hope that the policing authority are, are likely to ask these questions as well. I think the public, you know, it, at a time when there are really serious questions about the inefficacy of Garda response to public order issues more generally, that then this does jar, I think, with the public. And I think that's very understandable. Mm. Are you asking questions at this stage? Uh, I mean, are you asking if the Gardaí were acting as a, a private security company for Bank of Ireland was at the same time not responding uh, to real crime and public order incidents? Or uh, have you come to a conclusion? No, we haven't come to any conclusion. I mean, we, we, you know, like yourself, like we're re- only relying on the information that's been put out there. But what we're saying is that the Garda statement that was issued last night that this was a public order issue and um, doesn't, in our mind, you know, really pr- provide a persuasive case that this was a proportionate policing operation. And it also doesn't engage at all with the question about what was the communication between the bank and the guards. And um, the bank is saying that it communicated with the guards. The guards aren't acknowledging that at all. Mm. So I think it's really just a question of, of, of trying to get to the full picture of what happened. And it may very well be that Garda Shikona has other information that will show that they had intelligence about significant risks and so on. But they haven't put out there, that out there yet. And, and in that context, I think the public are surprised uh, at the images that they saw. And certainly the idea that some of the images had empty streets where there were no queues, where there was no public order issue. And you have guards blocking people accessing ATMs and guard vehicles, pa- parked on footpaths, 
to stop people getting to ATMs. And, and there's a line in the Garda statement which says the guards were involved in advising people about their personal finances. It's not at all clear what that means or, or how in any way that's appropriate for the guards to be involved in. Okay, Liam, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Liam Herrick is uh, the Executive uh, Director with ICCL. That's the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the decision to send uh, three Garda recruits home from uh, Templemore because they had tattoos has been described as ultra-conservative uh, by the Garda Representative Association. Brendan O'Connor is uh, president of uh, the GRA and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Brendan, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Perhaps uh, the rules are conservative or ultra-conservative, but the rules are the rules. Uh, is the GRA suggesting that the rules should be bent at times? Well, certainly we believe that the, the, the strict application of... And, and, and indeed, Michael, what we're talking about here is the interpretation because the rule says that the tattoo must be covered and as far as we're concerned, some of these tattoos could be covered if it was a case that we accepted that they couldn't be shown. But uh, the existence of them led to this. So it, it, it's, it's a complex issue and we understand that there, there has to be a certain... Uh, there has to be rules and regulations, but it would seem that uh, this was a kind of a blunt instrument at a time whenever we're stuck for... Uh, we're trying to recruit people and try to retain people in the organisation. And also we're trying to reach out and be more diverse and more reflective mm. of the population we serve. It was, there seems to be a possibility that this is out of step with, with, with the soundings and the direction that the organisation and society is going. Okay, a Garda can have tattoos under their clothing, uh, but not on their face or visible above their collar. I, I mean, that's pretty clear. And what I understand of uh, the tattoos, uh, it wouldn't have been permissible to hide them Below clothing. Uh, so, so, and, no, these the tattoos that led to this situation mm. wouldn't be hidden by clothing, but they can be concealed by makeup, or they can be concealed without a glove or another piece of clothing. It's my understanding. Again, mm. I don't have to get into the individual cases, but overall, it's a conversation about attitudes towards uh, body art, I suppose. And you know, the, the argument put forward has been that perhaps. Some people might find that they wouldn't relate or would be intimidated to a guard. But, I mean, guards interact with every uh, facet of society. So a guard going into a youth club, perhaps, would actually relate probably better with the young people if they had that too. So, look, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be discussed and teased out. But, as I say, the bottom line is three aspiring young guardy who had met nearly all the criteria to be a successful applicant and go on to progress and graduate as a guard are now... Um, they can't pursue that career and also the organisations at the loss of them. So we mm. think that is an, an overall loss to yeah. society. And, and the argument is being made uh, that recruiting Gardaí is more important than outdated rules like this because there's a recruitment crisis. Having said that, uh, the three individuals would have known the situation had they read the recruitment candidate information booklet, wouldn't they? That is an, yeah, that is an element of the conversation, but also I suppose the other side to that uh, discussion is at what stage in the process would those who are administering and overseeing the process bring this to their attention or clarify that situation. So, um, yes, there is an, mm. an element of the terms and conditions apply and people didn't comply with them, but also those administering those terms and conditions surely have some responsibility. Look, it's not about blaming or finger-pointing, it's about moving forward and trying to avoid this happening in the future, really. Mm, I, I suppose uh, when it comes to tattoos, and we discussed this on uh, the programme yesterday, uh, perhaps the tattoos uh, that the three trainees had 
uh, were fine. Uh, I mean, as I understand it, one of them was a tattoo of a line which uh, one of uh, the men had put on his hand uh, as a way of remembering his daughter's bravery after recovering a terrible illness uh, and the strength that she had. Uh, but tattoos can mean different things to different people uh, and uh, a, lot, a lot of the time you could be looking at tattoos and you don't know what they mean uh, and they can be symbols that are, are offensive and intended to be offensive. Yes, well, look, obviously, and that's where we say it, it's difficult for anybody to navigate and come with a policy, but obviously anything that shows uh, is just offensive or shows an allegiance to an inappropriate organisation or, or, or an ethos is certainly yeah. uh, anything that calls offensive no place for, but then offence is subjective, so some people might find offensive, others may not, but certainly there have to be guidelines and rules, but um, when we're talking about maybe stars behind ears and small discreet tattoos and that they're not in any way offensive and couldn't be perceived as being offensive. Uh, we certainly think that there is room for discussion and, and room for relaxation of the policy. Well, you'd have your homework cut out for you. Uh, I was uh, speaking about it yesterday and how I had done a Google search of offensive symbols and I couldn't get over what I was looking at. A lot of them were just numbers. Others were uh, symbols, if you like, uh, that meant nothing to me, uh, but a lot of them uh, were racist or xenophobic or uh, supporting right-wing neo-fascists, that sort of uh, thing. Uh, and uh, the idea that uh, a Garda could be going around with something like that obviously uh, would be unthinkable. Uh, it would be very easy, in other words, to stamp out something like uh, a Garda turning up uh, with a tattoo of a swastika. Uh, but if you were to check the meaning of every symbol that somebody turned up with, You'd have your work cut out, as I say. You'd be there forever in a day, would you not? Yes, that is one of the complexities and the difficulties, challenges facing the authorities. But on the, at the end of the day, we're a police service, and if we can unravel the most sophisticated crime in the world uh, in, in this day and age, surely uh, we can be able to find some sort of research or some sort of um, bar in relation to that. But again, I don't have mm. the solutions, but certainly someone who has a very inoffensive tattoo related to a family member or an event in their life it shouldn't be a prohibition to serving the community as a member of Gatshikana. And should this extend uh, to other parts of uh, the dress code, uh, whether that's the length of uh, your hair, whether you have it in a, a bun that is visible, or ponytails, or jewellery, or makeup, or some of these other things? Well, it's very, it's very hard to be prescriptive, but I suppose that the, it, these policies, they need to exist, but they need to be adaptive and they need to change the time. So... Um, I suppose, and again, we need to be reflective. We're told we need to be reflective of society that we police, so there is a place for diversity and for self-expression. Uniformity is a very important concept, but it's also important that uh, we, we let individuals have a certain level of self-expression when, when it doesn't, doesn't blur the line between offence and intimidation. Okay. Um, can I ask you just separately about a, a, another issue, if you've a, a view on Gardaí policing ATMs? Uh, there's a, a question being asked this morning by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, uh, and that is, if the Gardaí were acting as a private security firm for Bank of Ireland, do you believe, as the president of the GRA, that that's a question that needs to be answered? I don't believe so, because... You know, are we saying that if the Gardaí are called to assist the security staff at a hotel or nightclub that we're acting as agents of that private enterprise? Um, my understanding, and I have very limited knowledge of what mm. happened, is that in certain circumstances there were large numbers of people gathering. There was a lot of cash perhaps present. There were suggestions that there may have been offences in relation to theft and fraud that could happen. So for, a guard's fundamental duty is to 
maintain law and maintain order, which there was a public order aspect of some of these positions, and also to prevent crime. So it's entirely appropriate that Gardaí would be deployed to a situation where there's potential disorder and the potential that crimes would take place. So the ins and outs of each individual case, according to Commandant, but certainly would seem entirely appropriate that the Gardaí would be responding to an, an incident where there was reasonably expected to be policing function to be carried out. Okay, thank you very much indeed uh, for that and indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Much appreciated. Brendan O'Connor there. He is uh, the president of the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may remember I read an email out on the programme yesterday from Alex Sweeney, who was hoping uh, that uh, the Rose of Tralee would be brought to an end sometime soon and relegated to history on the grounds that it was sex is sexist and misogynistic and an insult to women, basically. A lot of you disagreed with her. It irked an awful lot of people. I, I think it might have annoyed some people, and you let us know. Uh, well, we've uh, another email from Alex Sweeney who wrote to us again overnight saying, Dear Michael, thanks for reading my email yesterday, although I was very disappointed by the amount of people who called you to support continuing with the Rose of Tralee beauty pageant. In this day and age, I expected more people to agree that judging women like the Rose of Tralee does to decide who is the loveliest girl of all serves half of the population, women, very badly. Listening to the comments from your listeners, though, I got the impression that instead of ending this national put-down of women, some of them at least would like to see the competition return to the original format. Should they bring back the swimsuit round? After all, can a lovely girl really be lovely if she doesn't have lovely legs? Swimsuits would also give the judges the chance to look at all of the girls' vital statistics. Would that help them to decide which one of the girls really is the loveliest of all. How about a cooking and culinary skills round or a special round on home decor or interior design? A hostessing and entertaining round might help decide which girl is the loveliest in the land. There could be a special round on women's work, things like childcare or parenting, knitting or gardening or how to welcome your husband home in the evening when he gets back from a hard day's work. Is that too old-fashioned? Maybe some of the men who listen to your programme would like to see shorter skirts, lower tops and higher heels. Or should there be a wet t-shirt competition? No, of course there shouldn't be. I hope and pray nobody listening to you would agree with any of those suggestions. Any or all of those things would, and I hope everyone would agree, be demeaning to the women and girls of this country. That should never be allowed to happen in the same way, in my opinion, that the lovely girls' competition should be brought to an end. Can we not get to a place where we look back in time at things that once were acceptable but have no place in the world that we live in today? Things like the black and white minstrel show, Benny Hill, Alf Garnet and the Rose of Tralee. Let's leave these things where they belong back in the dark old days and respect women for what they are human beings. All of us humans, women and men, have so much to bring to this world, there is no need for anyone anywhere to judge how it is we represent our gender. Thank you, Alex, uh, for your email once again. Our email address, by the way, is uh, is michael at lmfm.ie. If you'd like to comment on the phone, you can ring us on 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. 
and to some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us today. Many thanks to Matty in RD. Matty says, Good morning, Michael. I moved back here in 2015. I've paid my TV licence fee every year. I also have a dog licence. I get more entertainment from my dog than RTE. I won't be paying the TV licence again. Thank you very much indeed, Matty. If we had a, a prize uh, for the comment of the day or the funniest comment of the day, uh, I think it would go to Matty in RD. But I, I have a feeling that Matty is uh, very serious at the same time. Uh, somebody else says, Good morning, Michael. I love listening to your show every morning. And I'd like to say... Uh, I want to know whose fault it was in Bank of Ireland for all of that money in the ATM machines uh, to be made to uh, available to people that they could get it so easily out of the machine. It's a, a very interesting question, very serious question, very serious question for whoever uh, it was. Uh, and I'm sure it's one uh, that uh, Bank of Ireland will be looking into very closely. Uh, Tom, thank you for your text message this morning. He said, with regards to the Gardaí and the ATMs, it stinks. And it shows us again and again there is not a high presence of Gardaí on our streets. Then, whoa, all of a sudden, banks have a problem. Lots and lots of Gardaí, all of a sudden. I think people are making up their own minds about them, says Tom. Tony, thanks, Tom. Tony and County Loud in touch with a couple of comments, uh, he says, on the situation in RTE. Firstly, your guest yesterday, Melda Munster, performed very well in committees, unlike uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, Tony says, who had to read everything from a prepared script. But leaving that aside, I still say that the main problem in RTE is not this relatively small figure in the greater scheme of things but the outrageous amounts still being paid to unimportant light entertainment presenters by a system of client stroke agent bargaining that has been self-generated by RTE itself with no evidence that more economical sensible figures would have led to any loss of personalities. Thanks indeed for that, Tony. I think you're probably right saying that Peter Fitzpatrick read out his questions, but he uh, knew what he had to ask and he uh, stuck to the script. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I, I, I'd disagree. Uh, 
I have to say, uh, with uh, your assessment of Peter Fitzpatrick's uh, performance, uh, I, I thought uh, he he. he uh, obviously thought about what he wanted to ask before he went into uh, the committees and made sure that uh, he asked it to the letter. Uh, and I would have to say that you're probably right. I know actually you're 100% right uh, on the second point. When you think about it, uh, Ryan Turbidy earning whatever it was, was he earning 700 or 800,000 euro at one stage, had to bring it down to half a million. They brought it down to less than half a million, but they were lying. <laughs> RTE were lying. <laughs> Um, uh, well, there weren't. There were. It wasn't lies. It was creative accounting. Um, I suppose is the thing. But he actually was earning more than half a million. But we were told that it was less than half a million. Uh, if that's not a, a lie, it wasn't the truth. Uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, the reason for that was obviously that Brian Tuberty would end up leaving RTE and going to the BBC or to CNN or Sky or something. Um, now uh, Ryan Tuberty is begging for his job back for less than two hundred thousand. Um, it's uh, probably uh, something that speaks for itself. Uh, somebody else in touch, uh, thanks for your text. Um, there's no name with it, but thanks for your text. Uh, they said, we can't expect any new changes uh, with uh, the new director. Uh, he's one of the boys um, uh, and has been part of uh, the RTE crew. Um, uh, but when it comes to the bottom line, um they're all, oh, this is the Rose of Tralee. Um, uh, they're all on their knees and made to look stupid. I, I don't know anything about them being on their knees, but uh, thank you. Um, somebody else uh, says, uh, this is Anthony, actually. I beg your pardon, I'm a little bit mixed up after the last text. Anthony in RD uh, texting us today, uh, and he says, it'll be nothing short of a disgrace if Ryan Turbidy gets away with uh, this economical one or two line statement in this report. It would appear that Grant Thornton and RTE management, possibly for legal reasons, decided there was nothing uh, to report. Um, nothing to be gained by co-blaming Mr. Tuberty and RTE and Grant Thornton agreed to this get out of jail clause. Uh, I think uh, maybe we're mixing up uh, companies here. Deloitte uh, agreed to the way that RTE accounted for the payments to Ryan Tuberty. Grant Thornton has looked at that and has been critical of what happened. Uh, so um, apologies uh, for the confusion in that and I can understand why Anthony uh, is confusing Grant Thornton with Deloitte but Grant Thornton published the report yesterday and I, I think they're asking why Deloitte would have given the green light to RTE to go ahead and make it look as though Ryan Tuberty was earning less than half a million because they deducted 120000 from his published salary over a three year period because he was to pay that in an exit fee which he eventually waived. Uh, Tom and Kel says he can't understand why all of these people in RTA are paid so much money. Uh, they broadcast a, a lot of crap. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Tom. I did read that earlier on. Apologies for the repeat. Barney says, where were the Gardaí when the scum were ripping them uh, with uh, diggers, the ATMs out with uh, diggers? That's a good question. 
Uh, James in uh, Drogheda uh, uh, wondering if uh, we could have transgender rows of Trillies. That's an interesting thought, James. Thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's go to Cork and uh, Fine Gael TD, Colin Burke, who's a, a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. Good morning to you, Colin Burke. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I suppose we all feel uh, a bit foolish this morning. I think we probably all look a little bit foolish uh, this morning, having thought that Ryan Tuberty was earning less than €500,000, that nobody in RTE was earning more than €500,000, but the truth was something completely different and a bit of creative accountancy pulled the wall over our eyes. Are you annoyed personally um, uh, at being made a fool of out of RTE and are you concerned about how RTE has engaged uh, with the Oireachtas, the public and indeed its own staff uh, uh, because part of the reason it concocted this story of a deceit was to convince staff to take pay cuts. Yeah, I think your term creative accounting is the actual correct term because that's in fact what occurred in relation to the period where you know the the figure given was um, under the five hundred thousand. There was twenty thousand taken off. Um, in 2017, 50,000 in 2018, and then 50,000 in 2019. Um, so um, the the issue then on each occasion it brought the figure down under the 500,000, where in real terms it was over the 500,000. And that, you know, the 250s plus the 20, the 120,000 was the money that was to be paid to him at the end of the five-year contract. And I think, you know, creative accounting was what occurred here. Um, you know, the other thing that I find strange is the report by uh, Deloitte to the, this is the Independent Reasonable Assurance Report, which is the... This is RTE's top, auditors. Um, yeah, yeah. They, the top talent yeah. earnings for 2017-2019, prepared by RTE management. And basically, what I find strange about <clears throat> the, the Deloitte report is that, <clears throat> you know, they gave figures uh, and they gave the, the, the figures under the 500,000 when in fact in preparing a report you'd imagine that they would physically look at what was what was actually paid out as opposed to having relying on paper documentation uh, and they you know they then come along and there's a clause that appears which Grant Thornton quote um, it's an interesting line and it's great you know you, pre- you, you prepare a report but then you can put in this line I'm informed by Deloitte that they were not engaged to perform an audit, and this is evident from the wording contained in independent reasonable assurance reports. But what's the point in preparing reports if it's not accurate? And the report was not accurate. And then the other thing, of course, it wasn't brought before these reports. There was three reports not brought before the Board of RTE or not brought before the Audit and Risk Committee. So... It raises serious questions about the governance issue here um, as regards the whole system. Mm. The other thing that I think came up, Michael, quite a bit, and this came up in the Public Accounts Committee as well, I'm a qualified solicitor. Mm. 
you know, the whole issue about contracts is like yourself in your station, your own radio station, you have you have a contract. But what intrigued me about the RTE thing is that you have a document and then you have a whole lot of side letters. So it's impossible to make out what actually the contract is. And <clears throat> I know now the new director general has set out that everything in relation to an agreement is set out in one document, not in, in a, a, a whole range of documents. And this is the whole issue in Rishdorty as well, is that we have a contract and then we have all sorts of side letters. Um, and r- uh, people then don't know exactly what is the final agreement. <coughs> mm. and that's the, the, the issue that I find strange. Can I ask you about Lloyd's role in this uh, uh, and signing off or giving a, a green light uh, to what you've uh, agreed to as being creative accounting? Well, you see, they, they relied on the documents given to them by, I presume, within one of the departments. I'm not sure which department in RT gave them the, paper, the documentation as regards the earnings. Um, but when you're preparing a report, would you not do a cross-check, you know, say even one out of ten um, people to see what is the story here? But, I mean, having this line in, in the report, look, this is not, they weren't, they were not engaged to f- perform an audit. Mm. But my understanding is about preparing reports is that to make sure that who you're preparing the reports for, that it's true and accurate. And in this case, it wasn't true and accurate because the figures they were given were less than what was physically paid out. So in fact, in, you know, we have the figures there for 2017. The figure paid out was 511,000. In 2018, it was 545,000, and 2019 was 545,000. Whereas what appeared in this report, in these reports, was uh, 491,000, 495,000, 495,000. So all three figures were under 500,000, where in actual fact, the actual figure was over 500,000. And that sent everybody away uh, from asking questions uh, about the high salaries in RTE because they'd brought all of the salaries down to less than... Under the 500,000. And I suppose the other issue that arises... But it wasn't true. Um, It wasn't true. Yeah, so... Uh, so, The issue that arises then is that, you know, should Ryan Tuberty's agent or should Ryan Tuberty have, when this was published... You know, they knew what was going through. Remember, it's Total Productions Limited is the company name that that he operates under. Mm. Total Productions Limited would have a gross income for the year. Wouldn't that not show up on their on their accounts? And should they have not got back to RT and say, mm. "Look, we got in five hundred forty-five thousand, not four hundred ninety-five thousand. Would you ever correct the record here because we don't want someone coming back to talking about this at a later stage." Mm. As a solicitor and a data, as a TD, um, how do you perceive this in terms of the law? Uh, is it in line with company law, do you think? Well, I'm not an expert in company mm. law and I wouldn't hold mm. myself out to you, but I think it's in relation to reports, it's about the accuracy. And, you know, when you do an audit, if something appears um, as regards what's paid out, but in fact, what is actually paid out is different, then it causes a problem when you're doing an audit. Mm. Um, therefore, what, what you know goes through the books is what goes into the final accounts. Mm. So the physical money paid out to rent properties what would have gone through the accounts mm. in RTE. Now, the other issue, of course, was the 75,000, which didn't go through the books in RTE, went through the barter account. And again, like what was strange about that whole barter account issue was that 
the previous um, chair of the board, who was there for over eight years, wasn't aware of the, barter, the existence of a barter account until, it, until this issue blew up. Mm. So, you know, again, the, the issues that I raised in public consequently, which I have concern about, was the fact that the invoice for Noel Kelly was drafted by the legal department of RTE. It was sent to Noel Kelly. So, and there were two things that stood out clearly in that email to Noel Kelly. Uh, two things were the name Ryan Troberty, and the second thing was 75,000. That was sent to Noel Kelly to send on to Reynolds. So he had to draft, he, he, on his head at Notepaper then, the invoice for Reynolds, but it was the RTE legal department that sent that email out to them. But that email was also circulated to the accounts department in RTE. Mm. So <clears throat> the two things, as I said out, you know, at the public accounts committee hearing, there were two things that would stand out in that email. One was the name Ryan Troberty, and two was the figure of 75,000. And no one raised queries in it from the depart- from the finance department at mm. the time either. Mm. Well, uh, everybody in the country, bar a small uh, number of uh, people, thought Ryan Turberty was there earning less than five hundred thousand. Ryan Turberty and Old Kelly certainly would have known otherwise. Uh, the no, wor- I do think, in fairness to Ryan Turberty, I mean, they uh, they were not involved. He or Old mm. Kelly, no, but were not involved. He'd, he'd have in known the, that the published figures weren't correct. That was the point in the in the creative accounting. Mm. So. And I think the wording you've used is the correct wording, and it is creative accounting because there was no agreement about the writing off of the 120,000, and in fact, it, the 120,000 could only be written off anyway at the end of the five year contract, no. not at an earlier stage. Um, it, it, it's probably not too much of a surprise, uh, which is a strange thing to say given what I'm about to say, but it's probably not too much of a, a surprise to learn that RTE probably set out to deceive all of us. Uh, that's just not acceptable, isn't it? Uh, 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 how do you solve a problem? Like well, I, you see, I don't know who made the decision uh, to do this adjustment, who gave the instructions, who did it. And this is the whole problem that I found about mm. the at the Public Accounts Committee. There were quite a number of people where emails were... If an email was sent out, for instance, to an old Kelly, a number of other people were also included in that email. Um, so it's not just one person was aware of it. Uh, and likewise, I presume, in this scenario, um, there were there were a number of people who were aware of it. But the question is, someone had to make the final decision about, well, can we do this from an accounting point of view, when in fact the, the, the figure is not due until the end of the contract? Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, from an accounting point of view, can you do that? But the other thing that you have to take into account was that this money, when it appeared on the accounts, had already been physically paid out. Yeah. Can you do it from a, a, an accounting point of view? Uh, why would you... Why, actually physically, so... Why, why would you want to do it? Oh, yeah, why would you want to do it? And, and why would anyone in RTE want to make fools out of the public that they serve? Um, there's uh, huge problems, obviously, uh, and the future of uh, the state broadcaster is at stake. These questions are going to have to be resolved in one manner or another, aren't they? Absolutely, and I think you know there's there's a huge number of like it's all like all of the um, broadcasters, whether they're in RT or whether it's stations like your own. You know, you have a huge number of support staff. 
um, within RTE, none of them would be would have been earning even, I suppose, one-eighth of the money that we're talking about here. And, you know, they may, they feel obviously very aggrieved by what was going on behind the scenes. Um, and now it's the people at the lower end where, you know, <clears throat> we now have a situation where a million euros less per week is coming into RT on the TV licence issue. Mm. I mean, is there the people who are more at risk, uh, who are most at risk? And this is the big problem that we mm. now have to face, is how do we deal with this? Mm. Um, do we need to establish a different system for the funding of RT? Do we need to restructure all of that? And yeah. Then the other issue that are, comes into that as well, and I think it's important from your point of view as well, is how do we uh, facilitate and accommodate the independent stations as well? Because, you know, you have your own expense as well, you have your own costs, um, and you have your own challenges, and I think we need to bring all of that into the equation in looking at the funding for broadcasting in this country, and that should be part of that review. Mm. Um, do you think uh, that the management uh, in RCA, the individuals who've uh, been put into the decision-making decisions needs uh, to be looked at and how they are appointed or employed needs to be looked at and if that's reflective? Oh dear, we've uh, another problem with the phone lines. Uh, the question that I was going to put to Colin Burke, if we can get him back uh, on the line, uh, was to do with uh, why these uh, decisions are being made to, to pay the so-called stars the big money that they are being paid. Uh, we know the rationale. Uh, we know that over a, a long period of time, we've been told, if you don't pay Pat Kenny €900,000, uh, he's uh, going to be working for CBS television in the United States uh, or if you don't p- pay Ryan Tuberty €500,000 or uh, €700,000 or whatever it is, uh, he's going to be going to the BBC. Uh, when the reality of it is, is it's not the case. BBC, CBS, CNN, Sky Television, you name it, they're not queuing up to take these big stars out of RTA. They're good, they're great, they're not that good, they're not that great, they're not worth that amount of money. They're not going to get that amount of money elsewhere, so why are they going to get it in RTA? And the proof is in the pudding because... We see now negotiations going on, or at least we're reading in the newspapers, and I take it that they're well-informed reports, that Ryan Turberty is hoping to get his job back, not for half a million, not for 700, not for 900,000, but for less than 200,000 euro, which is uh, (laughs) a serious drop by anybody's standard coming from uh, what I I think probably was about 400,000, what he would have expected otherwise. So if that argument was false... Who believed in the first case that it was the correct argument? Who said, we have to pay these people an arm and a leg or else they're going to leave us and then we'll have no listeners. They'll all end up listening to LMFM or whatever the case may be. Who in their right mind said that the only way that we can get an audience is to pay people to come onto the programmes. They, I think they paid €350,000 out last year for people to come onto programmes. Uh, and to, then to pay expenses, cars and things like that, to bring them back and forth. There'd be hospitality involved in all that, these green rooms and all these kind of things. And then you have to pay the presenters 
10 years wages, 20 years wages uh, uh, relative to what people ordinarily earn. Anyway, uh, we lost Colin Burke off the line, so uh, didn't get the opportunity to ask that question. But it's a question, I suppose, uh, that I'm asking you. and Maybe you'd like to answer it. Our telephone number, 0419832000, if you have thoughts on that and you'd like to tell us what you think of whoever came up with that idea that if you didn't pay an arm and a leg uh, for somebody to do a job uh, that they'd leave and go elsewhere and you wouldn't be able to replace them uh, if that person should stay in the job. 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie and thanks, by the way, uh, to Colin Burke, Finnegale TD, a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee and apologies uh, to you uh, for the dropout in the line. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, apologies again for that dropout in the line. Uh, Colin Burke has come back to us and indeed apologies uh, to you, Deputy Burke. Thanks for coming back to us. Uh, I did have one last question that I, I wanted to put to you about the people who were making these decisions. Uh, just to put the question to you uh, as concisely as I can, we were told by somebody somewhere that if you didn't pay Ryan Tuberty or Pat Kenny 500,000 or a million euro a, a year, that they'd leave and go to the BBC uh, or elsewhere. That's obviously wrong when you see now that Ryan Tuberty seems uh, to be negotiating or trying to negotiate uh, his position back with RTE for less than €200,000. Can we have any confidence in whoever came up with this very hard-to-believe story that staff would leave if they weren't being paid an arm and a leg? Well, I think one of the issues that arose within RTE was that... um you know, for instance, the people when Pat Kinney was on, Ryan Tuberty were on, RT were, were charging um, far higher uh, rates for commercial advertising. And I presume what occurred then was that the agents for those people argued with RT that they were entitled to get a higher fee for the work that they were doing RT. And that was at the argument that they uh, that was uh, that was used over the years. Um, I think you know, the market in Ireland is very small. Um, I think the figures that were being paid out were way too high. I remember um, Ryan, Ryan Tuberty was on about 60% of what Pat Kenny was on. Um, but I do think there's a realisation that the market is very small in Ireland. Therefore, the number of places that any presenter can move to within the Irish jurisdiction is, is extremely small. Therefore, there isn't a need to pay out um, the the level of money that was being paid out, and I think that has to be now is is obviously under review. Okay, thanks for coming back. Uh, I think some of the, mm. I think some of the issues though that the moment RTE are tied in relation to other presenters, they are tied by contract. Sure, yeah, and they are mm. tied by contract law. But I do think, and I think one of the things that, that I do rec- welcome the um, in the public accounts committee, the director general confirmed that, you know, contracts are going to be one document, not a half a dozen different documents, mm. and no one knows exactly what the final agreement is. And those contracts that exist will run out 
uh, they are time limited and uh, there they is are a, time limited and yeah. so they will run out so I think there will be obviously a review of every contract in there after after that period of time you know Okay look thank you indeed for joining us uh, apologies again sure. for the dropout in yeah. the line and thanks for coming back to us uh, for that matter Fine Gael TD Colin Burke is a member of the Public Accounts Committee now as you know <laughs> do I need to tell you we have a housing crisis in this country it's been a problem for the last 15 years but 72% of people who have intellectual disabilities say that they're living with their family and 40% of those people want to move out and live independently. That's according to the pre-budget submission that has been made by Inclusion Ireland. Its CEO is Dervil McDonough who's on the line. Good morning Dervil and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, I take it it's uh, the housing crisis that's at the root of uh, this but does that mean that it's next to impossible for people who have intellectual disabilities to live independently? That certainly seems to be the case at the moment. And as you rightly pointed out, um, the housing crisis, the whole country is facing the housing crisis at the moment. But people with intellectual disabilities have faced this crisis for decades. And in our view, they've waited way too long for solutions to come to the fore. So in our pre-budget submission, as you as you pointed out, we uncovered and discovered quite a number of stark statistics, including that one that you mentioned about people wanting to move out of their family home. Um, and another stark statistic is that 15% of people living with family carers within the family home are living with carers who are over the age of 70. So this is a really um, significant issue for people. And quite a number of those individuals um, have been waiting for over 10 years if they're on a housing list. 20% of the individuals we surveyed have been waiting for over 10 years. So really what's happening in the system is that we're lurching from crisis to crisis. I just spoke, let me tell you, about an advocate that we work with very regularly, um, who I just spoke with yesterday, Mary. She's living with her mum, who is in her early 80s. And as Mary expresses constantly, she lives in fear of when her mum will pass away because there is no plan for her to move out and live independently. Now, she is on the housing list, but even if that house came up in the morning, the support package to live in that house that Mary would need is not readily available to her. So that's the core issue here, Mm. that the housing and the support packages to live in the house don't come on stream at the same time and are, are not as of yet coordinated. So she's living in that state of limbo, um, waiting for a crisis to happen. And we see this all the time. We see family carers passing away. And unfortunately, then crisis responses have to be put in place, which are never rights compliant and can never be fully what the person wants. So people end up moving far away. They have to move county, um, move in, living with people who they didn't have a choice to live with because that's the only available vacancy that's there. So I guess Overall, Michael, what we're calling for is a comprehensive plan to be published from government around this. We uh, know it can't be fixed. Uh, and when you talk about support, uh, Derville, what type of uh, supports would people with intellectual disabilities need if they were to live independently? Sure. Well, every single person with an intellectual disability is, is different and needs different accommodations um, and has different support needs and support requirements. Some people that we we know and we work with regularly might just need a number of hours of personal assistance support every every week just to help with maybe budgeting or managing the household and will live nearly pretty independently within that house, within the community. 
Um, but there are some people who we know that need a whole lot more support. So more intensive supports, which might involve staffing around the clock, people to support them to eat, to, to dress, and all of those things that help a person to have a good life and to be a member of the, of the community. So it's a whole range of supports mm. that people need. But I suppose the discrimination that we're pointing out in the system is that just because you happen to need support, because you have an intellectual disability and you need some accommodations to live in a house, your right to a house and to a home should not be denied on that basis. Okay, and because you need support that isn't available, does that transpire into a situation where you may end up giving support to somebody else, like an elderly parent, and in fact may end up caring for them. Absolutely, and that is happening time and time again. And we're hearing from the individuals themselves with intellectual disabilities about that situation. And we also hear from family members about that. People are crying out for a plan. Again, I don't think any of us are unrealistic. This is not going to be resolved overnight. It's going to take years there are systemic issues that are there. We were really welcomed the new housing strategy implementation plan was just published for disabled people in June. But side by side with that, we are awaiting for another very important implementation plan to be published, and that's the Disability Capacity Review. And that should be published by the Department of Children, Equality, Youth and Disability. Um, and that sets out the unmet needs of people with intellectual disabilities and should provide a framework and a plan to put those support packages in place for people so that people can move out of their family home if that's what they want to do, live in the community with whatever support they might happen to need. So we need that implementation plan to be published. We understand from the Minister, Minister Rabbit, um, has stated that Cabinet has approved that implementation plan, but as of yet, it hasn't been published publicly. And we really want to see that published in advance of the budget so that we can see clearly what the plan is and give hope to people finally, people who've waited far, far too long. OK, and you mentioned that people have a, a right to live independently. Uh, we've uh, signed up to that right under a United Nations Convention. We have indeed, and Article 19 is very clear on that, and the state's obligations about supporting people to live independently as rights holders in the community. And as of yet, we are fully in breach of that right at the moment. There are so many people waiting, thousands living with family carers for decades longer than they should have to, and 2,400 people living in large institutional settings who've never had a chance to have a choice about where they live or who they live with or how they live their lives. And we've 1,300 people, disabled people, under the age of 65, living in nursing homes for precisely the reason I spoke about earlier, which is crisis management. So because packages of support were not available to people, many of those individuals under the age of 65 ended up living in nursing homes. So we just want to see that stop right now. And we want to see the start of a plan about how we're going to stop that institutional type living and really focus on rights under the United Nations Convention. And that's 300 people uh, who, according to the Ombudsman, uh, are living wasted lives uh, because they're in nursing homes when really they ought not to be. Absolutely. And the, the Ombudsman published that stark report a couple of years ago. And we do know that there are plans in place to move um, that forward and to support people to move out of nursing homes where at all possible. And we need to see more urgency around that in Budget 2024. 
Right now, at the pace that things are moving, it would take up to 50 years for these issues to be resolved. And that's just not good enough. People are going to pass away in the meantime Mm. and they're going to live their lives in settings that are completely inappropriate. We need to see urgency in Budget 2024 and most importantly, a plan that's real, that's meaningful and is going to give people hope. What about the people who are living in nursing homes? I I mean, there's the obvious concerns you'd have uh, about that uh, in terms of uh, stimulation and uh, interaction with other people uh, and how that is very different than normal circumstances in a nursing home. Uh, But are they at liberty? Are the doors locked? Um, I suppose I can't speak for each of those individuals, but you will have seen news reports, media reports with some of the people themselves speaking up about their lives and their lack of their lack of liberty within those settings. I don't I, I can't speak. I, I don't know about each of the individuals and what their unique circumstances are. But either which way, their lives are incredibly restricted because mm. living in a large group home like that when you're under the age of 65 and you should have a right to live in the community, that's a restriction in and of itself. Yeah, and all of uh, the people that we're talking about have uh, their own potential in their lives in this world and uh, the opportunity to fulfil that uh, potential is denied. Uh, I mean, if any of us were placed in a nursing home today, our lives would dramatically change overnight. Absolutely, and the quality of your life um, would would dramatically change as well. And that's what we're seeing time and time again. So look, we need, we need a plan. We absolutely mm. need a plan. People deserve that plan and they need to see action right now. Um, and we just want to see step-by-step incremental change over the next number of years. And with that plan would come costings, obviously, uh, to achieve uh, the objectives uh, that you're laying out in your pre-budget submission. Have you any idea of how to improve the lives of people with intellectual disabilities, what that would cost? Yeah, so we have laid out in our, our budget submission um, quite a, quite in a quite detailed manner the level of cost that it would be for each residential place, um, for each home and house um, over the next number of years. Um, but that has also been laid out really, really clearly in the Disability Capacity Review Action Plan, which is the government's own report on the unmet need of people. So that's what we base our figures on. Unfortunately, that action plan, implementation plan, has not been published publicly. So we can't see what the government's plans are as of yet for year on year improving the situation for people. It is going to cost. There is no doubt about that. And hand in hand with us, there also needs to be a comprehensive, creative workforce planning strategy. Because not only are we facing a housing crisis, we are also facing a staffing and support crisis um, for disabled people across the country. So people need to look at that really seriously. We need to care for the carers. We Mm. need to make sure that people are paid well, that people stay in jobs, that people see, um, you know, a career within working working with disabled people and support people in rights-based ways. And so that needs to be taken really seriously. There's also a recruitment crisis which needs to be addressed. So all of these issues swirling around the housing issue really need to be addressed hand-in-hand with the provision of the home itself. You were telling me about the woman uh, living with her elderly mother in her 80s, uh, uh, and not specifically uh, that case, but for 
people who have an intellectual disability living with elderly parents, uh, I take it the parents are, are concerned about what happens after they pass, when they're gone. What happens? Um, uh, do uh, people stay in the family home? Uh, do they get the supports that they need to move out when their parents pass away? Well, unfortunately, it's often a crisis plan that has to be put in place, even though the crisis was entirely predictable, because we know how many people are living with ageing carers across the country who are going to be in need of a support and in need of a support package. And this is well documented and known by governments, by HSE, etc. So I suppose what we do, because we don't have an, a multi-annual budget which plans with people over time, we lurch from year to year and crisis to crisis. So unfortunately for some of those individuals, an emergency response will be put in place. Yes, some people will be able to stay in the family home if, that's, if, if that is possible and some support and home support could be put in place for that person if that's what they want and need. For others then who may not be able to stay within the family home, they may be offered a place that might be far away from their community. Um, we've seen multiple people over the last number of years being offered residential supports, and it could be um, 50 to 100 to 150 miles away. Um, and this is far away from all of their natural supports, cousins, family, brothers, sisters, and they have to move out in a crisis situation and move in with a number of other people who are disabled in that kind of, in that crisis format. Um, it never, with the best will in the world, it's almost impossible to focus on the person's human rights in a crisis because you're just dealing with survival um, and the very basics of survival and making sure that the person has support, has food, has a roof over their head. You can't possibly plan for that person's rights in that in that crisis mode. So, so that's what's happening right now. And no wonder, you know, that people feel fearful about that. People with intellectual disabilities themselves feel fearful about it. And family members constantly say that to us, what will happen when I'm gone? So again, everything hinges on the plan and moving far away from that crisis management. None of our lives, you know, to, to have a home of your own, to live a life, you need a plan. You need to, you know, save up money to move into a house of your own. You need to have a plan for your life. And that's no different for people with intellectual disabilities. And um, so that plan is absolutely critical. And indeed. the budget really needs to support that planning process. Okay. Derville, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Derville McDonough is the CEO of Inclusion Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yes, Michael, your guest speaker is correct, says Mary. We need to care for the carers and what did the government do? Means test the carers' allowance, which is a pittance enough for some of us carers giving 24-hour care to our loved ones. Thanks, Mary. Claire in touch with us today as well, saying she can't believe Ryan Tuberty might be brought back for 200,000 euro. It's still a huge salary, she says, particularly when the job is to present a one-hour light entertainment radio show. She'd like reassurances from RTE that they'll be 100% transparent going forward. She doesn't want to see her hard-earned money being squandered. Squandered? Ah, come on, Claire. It's not being squandered. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the price of limousines these days or flip-flops or whining and dying advertising executives in far-off lands. 
Squandered? I don't think so. Uh, Johnny says the atmosphere in RTA must be at rock bottom uh, for the past couple of months. Uh, these latest disclosures from Grant Thornton cannot be helping that situation. How do the management uh, think uh, they can just plough ahead with plans to bring back Turbidy when the majority of staff don't want them back? Surely the feelings of the other workers must be taken into consideration before any final decisions are made. I think I read somewhere recently that there's uh, divided opinion amongst the staff. I'm not sure about that. John, Joan, uh, doesn't understand uh, why people seem so enraged that Gardaí were protecting the ATMs. Why wouldn't they, she asks. People were literally trying to steal money. That was not theirs and they had no right to that money. So that's why the Gardaí were called. Uh, that's what they're there for. Stand by uh, and watch it happen. Is that what you expect? They were doing their job, plain and simple. People need to stop making mountains out of molehills. Ian says he wishes RTE would just get the finger out and either bring Turbidy back or let him go completely. This toing and froing is exhausting and it's a total waste of time. The answer to your question, Michael, on who authorised the obscene salaries and payments in RTE is RTE. RTE pay them like every other group in Ireland, such as the HSE, the banks, the government, etc., when there are problems, no names are ever mentioned. Name them and shame them. I say, great show, Mike. Keep up the good work. Tom in Dundalk, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we to Tony in County Louth uh, to answer that question. He says the answer is, quite obviously, Noel Kelly, Mr. 10%. <laughs> it was in his interest to create the impression that these personalities had major values when, in truth, their style and limited abilities would not have travelled outside of this country or would have had any value there. It was also driven by large sponsorship amounts from the likes of Renault that seemed to go entirely to Mr. Tuberty and was probably argued by Kelly that this was not costing RTE anything, when in fact it should have gone into RTE revenue instead of continually looking for subventions from the government. Uh, Michael and Navin says, I spoke with an RTE cameraman who was working on a late night broadcast on the streets in Dublin last week and I asked him what the feeling was like in RTE. He said the staff always knew that there were issues, but they didn't realise how bad things were at the top. He appreciates uh, the public support and I acknowledge my support for him and his colleagues but there's a serious problem now if people don't pay their TV licence as the innocent staff who face the actual pay cuts will now fear that their jobs will be under pressure. Thank you Michael. That's the final word. We've run out of time. Come to some other comments that came to us tomorrow but that's it for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.